It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tortoise. Hello, I'm Giles Wittell, Tortoise's deputy editor. And because James Harding is away, I'm in charge for this episode. So let's get on with things. It is Friday the 28th of July from Tortoise. Welcome to the news meeting. The chief executive of NatWest Bank, that's Dame Alison Rose, has resigned after admitting that she was the source for a BBC story about Nigel Farage's bank details. Stop judging people on their legally held political opinions. A man who spent 17 years in prison for a rape he didn't commit has had his conviction overturned by the Court of Appeal. On the 2nd of August 2003, I was kidnapped by the state. It has taken nearly 20 years to persuade my kidnappers to let me go. 162 million domestic for Barbie in one weekend. So there has been activity by by alien or non-human technology. What I personally witnessed myself and my wife was very disturbing. I'm joined by Basha Cummings, Jeevan Varsiga and Mark Sinandru. Hello. Hello. Hi. You're each going to pitch what you think should lead the news. We're going to discuss them, and then I'll pick the top story. Let's start with long stories short. You give us a teaser of what you're going to talk about in a single sentence. Basha, what's yours? Into the unknown. Excellent. I have no idea. Um, Jeevan? In deep water. This Mm. feels quite similar to Basha's. (laughs) Yes, very cryptic so far. Uh, Mark? I've got a choice for you. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, you can either have Alison, Nigel and Nat West or aliens. God, I love aliens. And we will try to squeeze them in. But we'll go for Alison and Nigel. What's that? In a line? Uh, uh, well, my long story short for that is end of the rose. End of the rose. Yeah. Excellent. Anyway, Basha, what's your story and why do you think it matters most? Uh, well, my story for this week is Israel. And uh, for people who have been following the news, they'll have been seeing these huge nationwide demonstrations that actually began in January when uh, the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, announced the plan that he was going to overhaul the judiciary. And he would. the proposal was to roll back the Supreme Court powers um, and it would give would basically give his governing far-right coalition a sway in picking judges. 
And this was after he returned to office at the end of 2022, and he was now the head of the most right-wing government ever seen in Israeli history. And that proposal led to all of these mass protests, people coming out to demonstrate the biggest that Israel has ever seen. And there's a particularly interesting poll that I came across, which estimates that about one in four Israelis say that they have participated in the protests. This is according to a, a poll published by the Israeli Democracy Institute. And 10% of those people identify as right-wing. So this is an issue that is cutting across Israeli society. And what they're really proposing, what the government is proposing, hinges on scrapping something called the reasonable, oh, it's actually quite hard to say, the reasonableness standard, um, which is a, is a standard that allows the Supreme Court currently to overrule some government decisions on things that it either deems too political or implausible or that undermine the public's trust in government. And this is the thing that the government wants to amend. And that would be an amendment to something called Israel's Basic Laws, which is, which is a body of legislation that essentially acts as Israel's constitution. So it is a huge fundamental shift in in. Israeli constitutional politics. Um, and the reason I'm pitching it now is that this has been a kind of slow-moving story. It's huge public outrage about this. But on Monday, after a final vote, um, it was scrapped. Uh, it was 64 votes to zero. So everybody in Netanyahu's coalition voted in favor and no member of the opposition voted against because they all left the Knesset in, in protest, some of them shouting as they did, shouting shame. And the next day, the front pages of the three biggest national newspapers in Israel were blacked out their front pages saying a black day for Israeli democracy. So that's sort of what's happened. That There was this, you know, a slow moving story that suddenly on Monday kind of happened. The work, the mm. thing that nobody wanted to happen, happened. And now Israel is facing this unprecedented constitutional crisis. Um, there'll likely be more uh, street protests. There's going to be probably widespread strikes. 10,000 military reservists have announced that they will not go to work and they will not report for duty. Has there been a decision? There was talk of a general strike, wasn't there? Is there is talk. There hasn't been a decision no. on that at the time of recording this. But there are also other things that are kind of worrying and shocking. One of them is that some people worry or some people fear that one of the reasons that the coalition is trying to push this through is that it could upend Benjamin Netanyahu's corruption trials. So he's right. currently accused of bribery, fraud and breach of trust. He denies all the charges, but this could be a way of getting him off those charges. Um, and is it right that one of his coalition leaders as well has skin in the game? Has skin in the game. There's somebody that they would like to reinstate who was done on tax charges. Yeah. Um, but the reason it matters, I think, is because this is the beginning of a huge shift in Israel it's a sign of where this government wants to take the country and it will have huge regional implications because we know that next on the agenda for, for Netanyahu's coalition, probably total annexation of the West Bank, mm -hmm. strengthening of traditional religious laws, limiting freedom of speech, rolling back women's rights and those of gay and Arab communities. So we know that this is the beginning of a much broader project. And, you know, we could see Israel slide into a religious autocracy. And I think that this is the moment to say it's happening. But Basha, when you say it's the beginning of a huge shift, what do you make of the argument that it's actually the end of or we're in the middle of a huge shift and that it's uh, led by the electorate rather than the government? Because, I mean, I take your point about this being 
the most right-wing government in Israel's history. But I think polling on key issues shows that large parts of the electorate have been moving right. Uh, and whereas Netanyahu, for some of his long stints in power, has been in by a whisker, he's got quite a, a stable majority now, which mm. in a sense must reflect public opinion on, on some of these issues, including including settlements. It does reflect public opinion on, on, on many of the issues, but there, a lot of people have been comparing what Netanyahu is doing to Trump and the question of kind of, you know, these populist policies, they do go down well, but it, is it the tail wagging the dog or the other way around? It, you know, is he legitimizing and, face, you know, fronting a really extreme right-wing project and mm. taking the population with him? These widespread demonstrations suggest that not everybody is behind him. And I think the the point that's been made this week is that it does demonstrate this quite fundamental schism within Israeli society of the people who want a kind of pluralist society and those who want a religious nationalist right. one. But there is just one quote that I wanted to read, um, which I think encapsulates uh, why this is important, from uh, Yuval Noah Hariri, the Israeli author and historian, who said this, and I think it summarizes it well. We might witness the rise of a Jewish supremacist dictatorship in Israel, which will not just be a terrible thing for Israeli citizens, but also a terrible thing for Palestinians, for Jewish traditions, and potentially for the entire Middle East. Okay, thank you. Jeevan, what do you make of all this? Um, so I'm going to preface everything I'm going to say next by saying I know very little about Israel, but my understanding is that Israeli Arabs are second-class citizens, uh, and that and that the Palestinians in the occupied territories don't have statehood. So, I mean, right. there are basically kind of problems with regarding Israel as a sort of plural liberal society in the right. first place. But actually, the other thing I'm going to say is that um, I think it's a little bit strange that we spend so much time talking about Israel um, as as journalists, because, uh, I mean, it's a teeny tiny country, isn't it? It's smaller than Belgium. Uh, I think its economy is smaller than Canada's. Uh, we give it a weight that we don't give other countries. And I think that's because we sort of use it as a screen onto which we project our own politics. And so that's kind of really. So I guess my question about and uh, doing a story about Israel is: is this a really significant story, or is this a story that we're doing because everybody's so obsessed with this with this one country? Thank you for reminding us that this is a show about which story leads the news rather than necessarily the substance of the stories. Uh, Mark, have you been following the protests? It is really interesting, but I I feel like there's quite. From, from a layperson's point of view, there are quite a lot of things you need to understand before you can understand the implications of why these changes matter so much because they don't have a second house and all these things I've just learned in the past few hours reading up because I knew you were going to present this story. So that's not a reason not to do it, but I feel like it's it's probably a longer in-depth feature rather than a leading story. Okay, thanks. Um, moving swiftly on, because we will come back to that, Jeevan, what's your story and why do you think it matters most? Sure. So um, the story I'm pitching um, is a climate science story. I'm climate editor at Tortoise. And this is a story based on research from two Danish academics um, called Peter Ditlevsen and Susanna Ditlevsen, who are brothers, brother and sister. They're a physicist and a mathematician, respectively. So I imagine there were sort of gripping conversations around the Ditlevsen breakfast table as they were growing up. The story is about something called the Atlantic uh, meridional overturning circulation, which 
is an incredible mouthful. Um, but it's basically, um, it's a very simple thing to imagine. It's basically a system of currents that brings warm water up from the tropics uh, to the northern part of the Atlantic, to North America and to Europe. Um, there is a connection to the Gulf Stream. I'll come back to this later. But basically, um, it's like a really slow-moving conveyor belt that's moving through the ocean. And it's really important for the world's weather, uh, for temperature, rainfall and other things. So this paper from the Ditlevson brother and sister says that the AMOC could stop and it could stop as soon as the middle of this century. So that's obviously quite a dramatic claim. Um, and the reason that I think this is interesting is because climate science doesn't usually make claims that are as dramatic as this. It doesn't usually say things like this is this thing, this current is going to be switched off. The system in the ocean is going to be switched off. It's going to happen at this date. Scientists are usually much, much more cautious than this. And, and this isn't also the kind of story that I tend to pitch as a climate journalist. And that's kind of why I think it's interesting. Um, so I'm just going to add a footnote very quickly on the Gulf Stream here, because the Gulf Stream is something that everybody knows about, very familiar with. It's the biggest current in, North, in the North Atlantic. It, it carries warm water, plays a really important role in the weather for Europe and North America. The scientific understanding is that it won't change much and it won't shut down. Even if the AMOC shuts down, the Gulf Stream won't. So there, there has been some reporting around this story, which is basically so the Gulf Stream may shut off. And that, that, as far as I understand it, is not the case. And I should also say that the IPCC's view is not with these Danish scientists. They don't agree. So the reason that I think this matters is because I think this is a story about how we understand science and how scientists communicate. Um, and I think that scientists tend to communicate their findings with a, lot of with a lot of doubt, with a lot of questions about how confident they are, questions about how certain they can be. And this encounters a public who just wants to know, will this happen? When will this happen by? This encounters journalists who ask the same questions and find it difficult to deal in the sort of shades of grey that scientists normally deal in. What that results in is a scientific community around climate that tends to take the most conservative positions. They say, you know, this, these are the findings that we're most certain about. And they're scary enough. So we had the report from the Met Office this week uh, that said the incredibly hot summer in Britain last year is going to be considered cool by the end of the century. And that's, that's you know, a conservative organisation making that claim. So that's, that's kind of scary enough. So you then have a story like this, which kind of makes a really bold assertion which has been criticised by other scientists, which has been criticised very publicly. Um, and I think the reason to report it, the reason to lead on this story, is because it's really interesting to talk about doubt and to talk about why, why we accept certain things as settled and how we should think about science. OK, so are you pitching it as a story about doubt uh, and, and the reporting of climate change? Or are you pitching it more as The Guardian uh, ran it earlier this week as... Uh, not just AMOC, but Gulfstream. I mean, you've clarified that. They, they said Gulfstream could collapse as early, if I recall, as 2025, not just the middle of the century. So what I'm not pitching here is my disaster movie right. with the new Ice Age, mammoths, the Statue of Liberty underwater. Yeah. I'm not pitching that. I'm pitching as a story about how science, politics and journalism collides when it comes to climate um, and what we understand. I think the one thing that I would sort of say or the one argument that I'd advance here in sort of defense of the Ditlevsons is that I would say in a lot of cases I think at the point when the science becomes settled there is a question about how late it will be yeah so we're absolutely certain this is going to happen oh it's just happened so you know I think it is worth having this conversation really really early, early. if we think there are kind of early warning signals of something like this happening 
Um, just a technical thing. I, I mentioned earlier that I'm really interested in what is actually happening to the fresh cold water that's pouring off the Greenland ice cap and how that feeds into this. But also, is it the case that uh, this paper, or if the AMOC shuts down, it might get colder rather than warmer in Europe? So, yes. So, if the if the AMOC shuts down, there will be impacts on Europe. I think that the understanding of those impacts is that there will be, it will be stormier, stormier in Europe. There'll be less rainfall in parts of Africa and Asia. So there will be serious climate effects from the AMOC shutting down. Right. They won't be, as far as I understand it, quite as serious as Gulf Stream switching off, but there will be impacts. Right. Um, but you asked a question about what the impact is of fresh water yeah. coming off the poles. Um, so the process is basically that um, the, cold, the hot, hot water sinks to the bottom. Hot water cools down. Okay, I'm trying to simply, how can I explain this really simply? I'm loving this. Basically, yeah. when when icebergs form, salt when ice forms at the poles, salt is left behind in the water. Oh. That makes the water denser. It means it sinks. Oh. If fresh water comes in, the water's less salty. It doesn't sink. So the kind of conveyor belt process of the water sinking back down, flowing back down towards the tropics, doesn't happen if you get lots of fresh water entering the mix. Okay, that's, so that's the process. We're, that's the process we're worried about. And so the, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead, Basha. Uh, the, so the, the fresh water... Don't ask me an A-level physics question now. <laughs> I'm no, still no, on GCSE. There's no danger of that. Um, the, just, so the, the fresh water sits on top of the salt water. Does it at some point become... The fresh water is pouring off the poles. So the fresh water is ice that's, that's melting. Right. The poles and, and Greenland. And Greenland, exactly. Yeah. So icebergs don't have salt in them. Yeah. So that's that's when they when they melt. That's fresh water entering the ocean. And then where does it go? It goes into the ocean. But the idea is that because it makes the water less salty, it slows down this process of the water moving. Right. Do you understand that now? Yeah. Let's say yes. Explain it to me. (laughs) (laughs) Mark, how worried are you about fresh water running amok? Uh, I never thought that I would be, but I feel like I should be now. I think that some of the reporting around this, I've I've seen the headlines about the Gulf Stream sort of about to fail. And I think that sort of highlights a responsibility to do sort of proper climate reporting, because when you publish headlines like that, it's very easy for sort of uh, climate change deniers and commentators on various satellite news shows to point at them and go, see, they're lying, it's not true, and it's all being hyped up out of reality. And So I think there is a, a question there around responsible climate science reporting. Um, that said, now I know what the AMOC does, I am worried and confused, but st- uh, largely worried. I think, yeah. think Jeevan, w- uh, one point that you made that listeners might raise their eyebrows at is is about the conservatism generally of the IPCC, which I think a lot of people in the middle of this debate regard as the source of quite a lot of the most uh, alarming headlines. Um, but is it, is it fair to say that they've stuck with the science and it's us who've done the spin uh, and and done the hyping, us in the media generally? Um, so my... My understanding of where of where the IPCC is is that what they say in public is generally much more cautious, much more balanced than, for example, what climate scientists will say in private about their views of what's happening. And and what they say in public is is alarming enough. Yeah. The reason I ask is is uh, you mentioned also that quite often when 
the apparently uh, alarmist stories are published, they're published too late. And it's already too late to do anything about it or react in, in any sort of a sensible way. What other, um, and I'm sorry, this is not really fair to put you on the spot about, so you can say not fair, move on. But are there other key examples that we should be aware of, 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 of landmarks that have been announced too late, that we've been aware of too late? Well, I think, I think the, the point for me, I think, well, I'd say two things in response to that. One of them is that we're clearly already living in a world of severe climate impacts. Yeah. We're already living in a world where people are dying in heat waves. We're already living in a world of severe wildfires, which are, which are causing disruption to our, to our lives. Um, the th- point that I wanted to make at the beginning is that really is that I'm a climate optimist. So I think we can fix that. I think we've got the technology. We've got the policies. We just need the political will. So I think that's kind of why these kinds of stories are problematic. It's because I think they make people switch off, they make people feel paralysed, they make people feel hopeless, which I think is the opposite of what, um, the opposite of the place we need to be as a species. How interesting. Uh, okay, let's take a moment and then we'll hear about Mark's story. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Mark. What is your story? Tell us more about it. You sure you don't want aliens? I'm not sure at all. If I get <laughs> bored of Alison Rose, we'll come to aliens. Okay, so it's the uh, the end of the rose at NatWest. Um, so this is the news uh, from this week that uh, NatWest chief exec Dame Alison Rose stepped down after admitting that she had inaccurately briefed a BBC journalist about the uh, details of the closure of... Nigel Farage's bank account. Um, this is the latest chapter in quite a, a sort of high-profile dispute. Um, I don't know. If, do I need to go over it here, or do you want the edited highlights? Let's have the edited highlights. Edited highlights. Okay. So the short version is: Coots is a, uh, a bank for high-net-worth individuals. The Queen banked there. The King banks there. Uh, Stormzy. At one point, even the Spice Girls were said to bank there, uh, and including one Nigel Farage, who back in June. 
posts uh, on his uh, social media accounts uh, a video where he says he's received a letter from Coots saying that um, they were closing his account and uh, this was a problem for him. They said it was a commercial decision and it caused lots of problems for him because he says he needs a business account to exist and a very emotive speech about how this rendered him a non-person and everything else. That's at the end of June. In early July, BBC News carries a story that the bank didn't want his custom because he didn't have enough money in his accounts. If you're a a Coots account holder, there are various thresholds you need to have at the point you open the account, at the amount that's sitting in there at any one time in savings and all the rest of it. Um, Around the same time that the BBC report appears saying that the account was closed because he didn't have enough money, Nigel Farage submits uh, an SAR request. To, to, to SAR standing for? Uh, subject access request, and an SAR gives individuals the right to get a copy of their personal data and any other information held on them by an institution. Cut to the middle of July, the SAR is delivered, and it contains minutes from a meeting back in November 2022, where Coots executives reviewed Nigel Farage's suitability as a client. Um, and it cites that uh, it states that continuing to have Mr. Farage as a customer wasn't consistent with Coots's position as an inclusive organisation, given his, quote, publicly stated views. And it cites various tweets he put out about Ricky Gervais. It cites his friendship with tennis player Novak Djokovic um, on the basis that Novak is, is was opposed to COVID vaccinations. It also highlights various comments he made about Black Lives Matter protests, the RNLI, and there are phrases in there uh, such as xenophobic and racist. And this is a Coots committee, not an AtWest committee. This is, this is at Coots, yeah. yeah Coots um, is part of the wealth yeah. management portfolio uh, uh, at NatWest. Regarding West. all these public pronouncements by Farage as a reason to debank him. As a reason to debank him, yeah. Um, then on the 24th of July, the BBC apologises publicly and the journalists involved will apologise uh, personally on, on on the site and on their social media accounts. And in the BBC statement, they say, we acknowledge that the information we reported that Coots's decision to, on Mr Farage's account did not involve considerations about his political views turned out not to be accurate and have apologised to Mr Farage. It then uh, cut towards the end of July the 25th, there are rumours that uh, where the, the information has come from a very senior source um, within the banking group. On the 25th of July, the chairman of NatWest uh, and the board released a statement saying they have full confidence in Alison Rose, a CEO, and that they were going to form an independent commission to look at what happened. And then the following day, uh, Alison Rose resigns after admitting to being the source of the inaccurate story. And I think after an intervention by number 10. Yeah, number 10, uh, the uh, Andrew Griffiths as well, the city minister, got involved right. in various meetings. Um, so uh, so that's happened as of, well, the 26th. And then just as we were preparing to come into this uh, to, to this recording, um, it was announced that Peter Flavel, the Coot CEO, has also stepped down. So, Mark, there's lots of angles here. There's the personality and the talent for mischief making or politics making on Farage's part. There's lessons about risk management for banks. There's lessons about crisis management for banks. Mm -hmm. Which aspect of the story is, is the one that you think makes it worthy of leading? 
I think that the well, I, I should say actually that that Nigel Farage isn't done yet. Right. Well. He he can send blood in the water, and for his victory lap, he is now after the whole of the NatWest board to resign. So he's going to make a lot of capital out of this. Um, and on some of the arguments he's making, it's quite hard to disagree with him. But I would say that the strongest angle is. It opens up the discussion around, first of all, free speech, the nature of the information that banks and other institutions hold oh, on their customers yeah. when it's not core to the service that you're buying from them. Um, it also highlights there's, there's the accusation is that regulations that were designed to track oligarchs and, and uh, money from organized crime being laundered through financial institutions are being used for what some would say a sort of petty uh, uh, situations like this. I think it's also important, although it's not the lead angle, in that there is a question there in this uh, about institutions getting carried away by purpose and the sense of being seen to have a purpose. Coots is a B Corp. It regularly plasters the front of its strand headquarters in large vinyl signs supporting all sorts of very worthy causes and, and advocating for various groups. But at some point, a bank is a bank. And if you're Coots, Nigel Farage is one of your customers amongst potentially, you know, Stormzy and Emma Watson, but also I imagine a lot of very wealthy people who have made their money in ways that could be deemed quite questionable if you're going to really live that sort of purpose argument. Thank you. Jeevan, why, isn't this, why is this about more than um, Farage picking a clever fight? Um, I mean, I think it's a really compelling story, actually. And um, as you've pointed out, Giles, and as Marcus pointed out, there are several layers to it. I mean, firstly, I think the kind of confidentiality point is striking. I think that's really clear cut. And that feels obviously like a sackable offence for a bank CEO. But I think what's really interesting about it is actually the kind of questions about politics and risk. And I think banks have a right to kind of manage their exposure to risk. That's perfectly reasonable. Banks also have a right to take political stances. Companies generally have a right to take political stances. What they don't have a right to do is judge their customers' politics. And I think that's where it's really interesting. And that's where you have sympathy for Farage. Because I think it's I think it's really unacceptable that they should say, because he's tweeted about Ricky Gervais or Novak Djokovic, therefore he's an unsuitable customer for us. That's a really sinister path for a company to go down. I think it's, it's absolutely fine for them to put up a, a pride flag, say these are our values, we take this stance on, on this question, that's perfectly acceptable. But when it comes to making decisions about individuals, that's where it becomes really uncomfortable. Basha, what do you think about all this? I think the point that Mark made about the hypocrisy, the sort of hidden hypocrisy in this story, which is that, yes, Nigel Farage is, you know, a public political animal. Uh, he, you know, he doesn't hide his views. It's curious to me that they made a decision you know, and a pretty short-sighted one that was very obviously going to backfire at some point, not to allow him to bank with them. When, as Mark says, you know, people who have a lot of money and who will invest their money in with coots or keep their money with coots will be involved in all manner of things that many of us may find unsavory and will be in, contra in, in contradiction with the values that it as a bank may profess. And I don't know how you can draw a line between private, you know, people who are doing things privately that might be massively destabilizing the world or investing in terrible environment, you know, and then a man who tweets about Novak Djokovic or, you know, I think there's a there's a hypocrisy line here that I find very difficult to stomach. Yeah. Um, I listened to it, it's worth joining the 27 million people who've um, who've watched his original YouTube six minute six minute film. He has an uncanny sort of 
I'm leveling with you guys. Um, uh, uh, style, doesn't he? Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah. he's one. Regardless of what you think of his politics, he is one of the most successful and effective campaigners and activists of our current political generation. You know, it's has, such a yeah. gift for him. This, yeah. though, that's the thing. It's like it plays exactly. And he's not go of it. No, and and you know, he. It's obvious he wouldn't from the moment he went public about it. Thanks, Mark. But you know and I know that what we're really interested in is the aliens. Yeah. See, what, what? you what you want to hear about is David Grush. So David Grush is a former uh, US security uh, intelligence official, and he has just been uh, under oath at a congressional hearing in the US. And last night he confirmed that, well, he, he said that he was absolutely certain the US government is in possession of non-human vehicles. <laughs> non-human is the word that he likes to use instead of alien or extraterrestrial. He was then asked the pilots that, that drove those craft, what happened to them? And he said that biologics, biologics came with some of the recoveries. So what he is saying under oath in a congressional <laughs> hearing is that the US not only has spaceships and bits of spaceships, but they also have of we should say alien spaceships. And alien spaceships, yeah, yeah. non-human non alien spaceships from outer space and the bits of the pilots were recovered with those spacecraft. When? Where? Uh, it, recently, he says that he has talked to people uh, with direct knowledge of the programme who are currently still on the programme. And he was backed up by, I think, two or three other witnesses, including an ex-Navy pilot, and it's basically the, the the hearings are kind of asking questions about cover ups and what information is being released and not released and everything else. But it, it's I think that the U.S. government has alien spaceships and bits of alien in its possession is absolutely a lead story. Fantastic. Thanks, Mark. Now, before I make a decision about which story we lead with, I want to know which one the three of you would pick. But you can't choose your own. So, Basha, starting with you. Which story would you choose? Make your mind up, Tony. Oh, I'm oh, going to go with Coots, but okay. very marginally. Thank you. Mark, what's yours? Because I don't understand much about Israeli politics, I sort of feel the responsibility might be the Israel story because it feels like one of those things that's very domestic and quite difficult to understand until all of a sudden it won't be very domestic. And I think the switch from one to the other, that, 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 that flip could happen quite fast. So... I'm going to go Israel. Okay. Jeevan? It's, it's Farage and Alison Rose. And I think it is not every day that a bank chief executive is basically pushed into resigning by a prime minister and chancellor of the exchequer. So I think, I think that makes it the sort of significant news event. Okay, great. Well, thank you, everyone. I agree with you that the, the sort of snowball element of the Alison Rose story is remarkable. The upshot is unprecedented. Uh, but I also agree with you that there's a manufactured element. And I think five years, 10 years hence, people are not going to be spending much time talking about the criteria for a politically exposed person, the the information that UK banks, which are already highly regulated and relatively speaking transparent uh, about the information that they can hold on their customers. And so even though uh, I think... Uh, there are important matters. This isn't just a, a fringe po political story. Uh, there are important matters about banking uh, and about regulation, uh, which which make it a, a legitimate uh, lead story in bulletins up to now. I'm not going to pick it for this show, nor am I going to pick 
um, the Gulf Stream or Amok. And that's I'm being a little bit brutal here because, well, I bow to no one in the importance that I attach to the collapse of global climate. I, I think you're right that this is um, uh, what I would consider a meta story, a story about the story rather than the story itself. I think we're not quite there yet on what is actually happening deep beneath the surface of the North Atlantic. And I don't think these th th scientists would necessarily claim that they are. They're just they are making a, a statistical analysis of, as you explained to me earlier, sea surface temperatures, which leaves Israel. And uh, that is going to lead the news as far as I'm concerned. And the only thing I'd add there is I disagree with you, Jeevan, on the idea that Israel is a canvas on which we, or is just a canvas on which we project our own um, uh, political, an political anxieties and geopolitical anxieties. I think it's a lot more than that. I think it is, um, remains um, the only functioning, albeit deeply flawed, democracy in the region. I think the electorate as well as the political machinery is lurching to the right. I think uh, more particularly as far as sort of the definition of news concerned, this is happening. This is not a meta story. It's not a process story. It's, as you say, Basha, uh, a quarter of the people on the streets, spectacular demonstrations, an extraordinary division uh, uh, of the country. Um, so anyway, that's my running order. Israel at the top. Alison Rose and Nigel Farage in the middle, and to my own surprise, the uh, Gulf Stream, a strong third. If you disagree with the running order I chose today, you can always email us on newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. But for today, Basha, Jeevan and Mark, thank you. Liz Mosley will be back in the editor's chair on Monday, so please join her then. And have a very good weekend. Tortoise. 